Welcome, captives, to episode seven of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by RQ and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. My guest co host this week is Neil Campbell, director at Allenby Consulting, based out of London. Neil, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Richard. Pleased to be here. Neil, you're a bit of a serial winner when it comes to the European Captive Review Awards, uh, the result of a few really interesting submissions alongside one of your clients, British American Tobacco. For the benefit of our listeners who may not know you as well as we do, could you provide a bit of background on your own career and your areas of specialty? Sure. Um, Yeah, I guess I've been around quite a while, but really started my insurance career properly at ICI. And given the captive subject here, I suppose when I arrived, they'd already had a captive for 62 years. So it was a fairly mature operation in that respect. Um, Subsequently, risk manager at Zeneca and AstraZeneca. So 16 years on that side of the fence. And then I moved across and spent 10 years leading the life science practice at JLT. And for the last six years, I've been an independent consultant. Uh, that's, That's kind of briefly it. Most of what I do is uh, consulting for major corporations. BAT is a bit unusual in the sense that most of my clients are actually pharmaceutical companies. And the, the predominant um, kind of common theme is developing their captive strategies, structured reinsurance. And lastly, I have a particular um, hobby, which is supporting Munich Re in the development of some fairly novel non-damaged BI products for regulatory risk. Uh, and that's really good fun and going well. Interesting, interesting. Well, I always enjoy meeting independent consultants. We've had a few on on this podcast already, um, and often you do work with large clients in the UK and Europe on existing capital strategies and feasibility studies. Because we, it's interesting because we often hear that Europe is a quiet market on that front, whether it's feasibility studies or just reviewing captive strategies. But there, there obviously is enough work keeping a lot of quality consultants, including yourself, busy. Yeah, well, there seems to be, luckily. Um, there's a few of us out there, and um, I was just mentioning before the show that I uh, listened into the, the Jason Flaxbeard session earlier. I guess we are ploughing the same furrow to some extent each side of the Atlantic, but uh, the, the complex reinsurance programmes that sit behind captives do need a lot of maintenance and management, but they're very flexible beasts, and I've just been through a process of renewing a whole bunch of those which are five-year programs and so there's a lot of work there but each program itself adapts each year and evolves to not only reflect evolving risks and um, the new sort of market dynamics but also to extend and build uh, the whole concept of you know, putting the captive at the center of the philosophy so I think that you know that's the main part I do some employee benefit project work, some strategic reviews, and occasionally get involved in RFPs, although that's not my favourite area of activity. (laughs) Well, in this episode, uh, we have got a really interesting captive owner. We've already mentioned a few interesting captive owners, but we've got a really interesting captive owner interview in the second half of this episode with the excellent team at Cummins, Judy Ertel, Mikey Davidson, and Dana Feng. But first up, we are going to dive into a bit of chat around the mid-market 831B captive segment in the United States in an interview with Elevate Captives' Ryan Ralston. Ryan's background is actually originally with uh, Fortune 500 type companies in their insurance team, so similar background to you, Neil. But um, now he works on the smaller captive side, on the consulting side. He provides a really unique perspective on his current work with smaller and often privately owned businesses who are now embracing captive vehicles. 
Ryan began by providing some of that career context. Yeah, my background started in um, risk management at the Boeing Company, about seven years there, and then Whirlpool Corporation, Coke Industry. So most of my background has been large companies on the risk management side, and each one of those I've either ran the captive or built one or two captives for them. So my focus has been using risk management as a, a means to try to help companies lower cost and um, implement strategies using captives. And during your career then, uh, how, how do you think the uses and, and motivation for captives have changed in, in the United States? Yeah, that's a good question because it, it, 20 years ago, it used to be primarily to save cost. It was to protect assets, of course, but to save costs, whether it was direct access to reinsurance or if it was raising deductibles and funding deductibles and captives, recapturing premiums otherwise paid to the insurance market. But in the recent years, I've seen more companies use it strategically. So they try to put captive programs together to align incentives for good behaviors for different divisions or for um, different areas within the company. Uh, I've seen mid-sized companies use it to fund for future problems called enterprise risk captives. Yeah where they look at a lot of different coverages and the funding to build a war chest to help sustain their business when things do go wrong. It's interesting contrast, uh, your background previously on the risk management side with, with large kind of Fortune 500 companies and now working in the kind of enterprise risk capture space. How, how much of a different environment is it? Is it? Are the conversations generally the same, just with smaller numbers? Or what's the main contrast between producing captives for, for large Fortune 500 and working with the kind of middle market and privately held companies? The ends is very similar, but the means is widely different. Yeah. Um, at Fortune 500 companies, there's a lot of politics, there's a lot of egos, there's a lot of things, little um, uh, hurdles you got to get over to put a captive program together. With smaller or mid-sized companies, usually you're talking to the owner or the CFO, they're ready to go. They make decisions relatively quickly um, so you can talk to them more about the strategy of the company and how it helps increase revenues uh, for the company, whether they're insuring um, downstream or upstream risks, um, adjoining risks and coming with new revenue into a captive, or using it strategically to, again, align incentives in the company. They get it a lot quicker. Uh, do, do you believe uh, captives are, are fully utilized as risk management tools. So I'm thinking along the lines of funding loss prevention programs, centralizing insurance program management. And if, if so, has that kind of attitude trickled down to the, to the SME market? There's a lot of larger companies that are using it fully. In other words, funding deductibles, accessing reinsurance, plugging holes in their programs, aligning incentives. There's a lot of big companies do that. The middle-sized companies, not so much. A lot of companies don't know about it. The, the companies that have grown quickly and have very busy CFOs, presidents, you know, they've heard captives. And unfortunately, in today's age, captives uh, also carries some weight with it with yeah. some of the IRS um, attacks. And, and so just getting education as to what that means, how you avoid that, how you can use it as a positive tool, um, it takes a bit of work. And what, what kind of new capital formations have, have you been working on, kind of types of capital have you been working on in the last 18 months? Working on a lot of construction, again, real estate, uh, working on enterprise risk captives for some, some smaller groups that have, you know, $50 million in revenues, uh, working in a group captive for healthcare, a uh, variety of service industries there, um, trying to keep employees and offer health insurance to 
um, you know, minimum wage workers, and it's just it's almost pro cost prohibited yeah. to offer those kind of coverages, um, health insurance coverages. So we're trying to help help be more affordable and help them keep jobs. Yeah, that sounds like a good use a good use of captives. I mean, you, you touched on the kind of the IRS angle a moment ago regarding enterprise risk captives. How would you rate you know, bearing that in mind? And, and we had the Microsoft case at the other end of the spectrum last year in Arizona and Washington State. How would you rate the general health of the, the captive industry in, in America today? The general health, I would rate as, as excellent. Um, usually it takes some stress to make you stronger. And I think the attacks by the IRS on the smaller 831B labeled captives is a good thing for our industry. There's clearly been abuses. And I think that um, trying having that type of pressure allows us to define what's a good captive. And I, I, I'm really encouraging people not to wait for the IRS to define it. If we self-police and we define what is a good captive, which a lot of groups have come out with it, um, SIA is coming out, you know, SICA, VCIA is coming up with what is a good captive. All of these contribute to uh, policing ourselves. And if we can do that, we'll be stronger having that kind of attack and pressure. I am concerned about uh, the state uh, in Washington where they're putting a lot of pressure on um, companies that have been doing captives for years and they've been silent about it and now they're going after them trying to collect taxes. That's, that's, not a, that's kind of a black eye, um, not so much for captives, but more for the state insurance regulators. I, th- I think that's something we'll have to deal with for a while. So what, what can we do then, moving away from the tax issues, what can we do, do you think, as an industry to be emphasizing uh, more of a good news around captives? I think we can be proactive in education especially with new members, new people looking at having captives, educate them proper ways to use it. I think we can uh, stress the good uses of even 830, what's getting classified as 831B, the good uses of it on an enterprise basis, how it's helped companies um, you know, save themselves and having funding available when things go wrong, um, helping uh, them to do good risk management using a captive. There's so many good stories that we can share. I appreciate what you're doing here with the podcast and getting this information out. This is the way to to address it is to get good education out there. Neil, your focus is obviously here with large clients in the UK. Do you find any benefit from keeping in touch with what is happening with different kinds of captive structures in different markets? Oh yeah, for sure, particularly the US because it's a little bit different. One of my major clients is actually US um, and understanding the IRS approach and all the other implications, uh, that that's key. I do read, uh, you know, around the subject, but essentially my target and focus is, is large multinationals. So um, taking a global perspective and uh, I certainly think that um, what's happening around the world in captives is absolutely fascinating and, and you know we're going to see a, a, a lot more activity. One topic I know you're passionate about and you mentioned is the structured reinsurance solutions and as you mentioned we had Jason Flaxbeard talking about this on episode two of the Global Captive podcast suggesting there is more momentum getting behind us again in the United States and you seem to agree with that you seem to agree that there is not only more interest from captive owners Uh, than there has been in the last decade right now, but also perhaps from reinsurers wanting to facilitate these types of transactions. Why do you believe that is? Well, funnily enough, I've just given a presentation on this subject, so it's quite fresh in the mind. And um, thinking about why why it is, I I guess that I would boil it down to three things. 
I mean, we, we do, a lot of us remember um, when Elliot Spitzer came along and had a go at certain types of transaction, and that left, um, you know, quite, a, quite a, a sort of fallout in terms of reinsurers running for the hills, uh, a lot of corporations thinking this is bad, bad insurance, um, and generally, I suppose, the market kind of collapsed a wee bit, brokers dissembled their teams, and I think that's all come back now, and certainly what you see from the reinsurer side is a much bigger appetite and a much quicker process to get deals done. And secondly, I, I'm seeing that a lot of risk managers nowadays are coming with slightly different backgrounds. Often they're coming from inside the co- corporation and with finance backgrounds that are a lot more curious about these different types of structure, these more kind of hybrid uh, approaches to insurance. And lastly, I think we have a much better understanding and, and greater opportunity to use modelling in, in order to, to prove the economic case. I think I would just also point out that Jason made some very valid points which I won't repeat about uh, the efficiency of buying insurance across a portfolio as opposed to on a siloed basis. On the capital play, yeah. I mean, but what we do here at the moment, and certainly in my role at Amic, we're starting to hear more from our members, is a hardening, or as my boss Julia Graham describes it, a harshening of the insurance market. If we are entering that stage again, is there a significant benefit for captive owners to be exploring these types of structures sooner rather than later? Is, is this is now a, a better time to be doing it before you're caught short? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I would say that on the one hand, structured reinsurance is a way of life. You know, if you're going down that route, you'll probably never turn back. It's, it's part of a, an overall philosophy that you would adopt would stand the test of time but particularly given that soft market is you know it's been around for a while it is an encouragement to buy a lot of insurance and quite low down and, and now we're seeing that changing certainly dno and some other lines i think it is it's a fantastic time and i've got two examples of where the predicted economic benefit has actually been improved by the hardening market as we've come around to renewal of those programs so absolutely and does putting a structure you, you mentioned earlier about time and effort does putting a structured reinsurance program together produce a lot more work, time and investment for the, for the customer compared to a, a traditional reinsurance purchase? Yeah, a little bit. But at the end of the day, the economic benefits are so significant. And I think nearly every company would benefit, particularly in the hardening market. However, the process has become a lot easier. And if you kind of know what you're doing and where you're going, three to six months is a good timeline from feasibility to modelling to implementation I think there are three things to, to have in the back pocket. One is the ability to articulate the rationale to your senior management. The second is to have that economic case supported by modelling. But at the same time, and probably in parallel, you need to develop the contract because they are complex beasts and there is no standard template. But if you've got that in, in hand, then yes, six months is probably as long as you need to take. Okay, well, good advice. And do please stay with us for part two of the Global Captive podcast, where we will be hearing from the risk and insurance management team at Cummins. The Global Captive podcast is supported by R&Q, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. R&Q can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to R&Q. 
Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Neil Campbell of Allenby Consulting. To begin part two, we are going to dive straight into my chat with Fortune 500 engine manufacturer and distributor Cummins. While they were visiting London, I was delighted to sit down with Judy Ertel, Managing Director of Global Risk, Captive Program Director Dana Feng, and Mikey Davidson, Director of Global Risk Services based here in the UK. Judy began by outlining the rationale and history of the Cummins Captive. You know, like many corporations, when you have a large catastrophic loss, that's the time that you begin to relook at and rethink about your insurance strategy and, and your risk transfer structure. And, and Cummins had that event in 2008 after a major flood. And so the way that you buy insurance, the pricing of insurance, the, the program structure, capacity, all changes in an instant. And so we began looking at opportunities or alternatives to the commercial insurance market that helped us um, provide risk transfer for Cummins. And thus we began looking in late 2008-2009 at a captive. Uh, we began you know, formally structuring the captive program in 2010 and established our captive in Vermont. One key initiative for us to utilize captive is really about uh, collecting global data for any type of insurance and also try to utilize t- data for evaluation and then assessment, trying to do more of internal risk mitigation and loss prevention. So so in that captive journey, I know one area that you had to go down and explore was uh, the runoff and process of selling a captive uh, a couple of years ago, I believe. Could you just talk me through um, how you came to the point that you had to have a, you had a second captive which you wanted to offload and, and, and why? Yeah, we have really unique uh, story about the sales of captive. In the past uh, five years, we tried to acquire our North American distributors channel and then uh, they used to really set up their own group captive. A small group captive only have 10 business owners. But because we now fully acquire them and we have our own insurance program and our own captive, so we don't necessarily need that uh, a small group captive. So everything is running off. The unique situation for that group captive is um, one legacy insurer in the whole history went bankruptcy and then it has to go to New York liquidator, which will drag all the claim handling and claim settlement uh, to longer period, more than probably 20 years. So uh, all the previous business owners, they want to get rid- get out of the business. But I think uh, uh, overall, we have uh, our intention try to sell the, the captive so that uh, we don't need to continue managing the captive, managing the claims, and also continue communicating internally with our uh, our stakeholders. So at the end, uh, we try to get a quote from the market through our capital manager, Peter Carlson, and then we find uh, RQ can provide really a really competitive quote, and also they are willing to work with us, c- help us communicate internally with all those stakeholders, and also try to explain what the quote really means to the business owners. So I think that's important for for us because we want to make tr- ma- want to justify the value we get from RQ is reasonable and also is really what we need. So I think uh, after around uh, uh, ten months internal communication and also uh, explanation of the pricing and quote, then finally we sell uh, we sold uh, um, our small group captive to RQ in March 2017. 
So I think that went really well, and it justify our internal value. Uh, what we want to use captive for, and why? What type of risk we want to maintain in the captive, and why we want to get rid of some legacy liabilities. The captive plays a very active role, not just in the insurance procurement, but in general in risk management more generally across the whole organisation. How do you go about communicating that value of the captive um, internally at Cummins? In the early phases of establishing the captive, we knew uh, being a global corporation around the world, 60,000 plus employees, uh, 190 countries, um, that we would have a difficult time communicating. And so in the structure of the captive, we built in at the very front end what we call an advisory committee. So we went to the major functions, treasury, tax, legal, finance, and we ask a corporate leader in each of those functions to set on what we call an advisory board or advisory committee. And so every year, four times a year, every quarter, we meet with those cross functions to update them on Number one, how the captive is doing financially, but number two, how many times the business is coming to us asking us to consider how we might help them solve problems. And so the structure of that advisory committee was first and foremost from each of those functions. We knew they would have reaches into the business from their functional aspect. And so the better and the more informed they were about the captive and the resource it brought and and the potential solutions that it could provide, we knew that they would be a good spokesperson for the captive. And so we designed very early on a more formal mechanism with an advisory committee to help us get the message out there to partner with the business. In addition to advisory committee, uh, we utilize captive board and also different uh, cross-functional team leader will help us to drive certain committee like investment committee, tax committee, and accounting committee. And then on top of that, uh, when we go visit global business and try to understand their business needs, business development, and then new business or emerging risks, then we also try to introduce captive, what captive can do and what captive can support business leaders. So we have really robust uh, kind of communication plan. That's really interesting because often you hear that that um, wider company oversight and company awareness of the captive comes purely from the board level where the captive board might have someone from legal or someone from treasury on there. But So it's interesting you've got a committee kind of on the opposite side, below the captive almost, feeding in those ideas and, and, that, and that visibility. Um, Dana, in your role, it's funny because I don't think there's a huge number of Um, what we might call captive directors or captive program directors within um, captive owners themselves. Funnily enough, we had just had the University of California on last week who do have a couple of those people with that exact title. I'd be interested just to know, Dana, when you came in, was that a new role within the organization? Or how long have you had a captive director? And what's the thinking behind that kind of dedicated role? Yes, when I first relocated to U.S. to take over captive role, this is a newly developed so in the past, we utilized captive manager as external resources. But then we realized our captive is really being actively used internally. So we want to really have someone f- dedicated to this role to help um, manage 
and govern govern the captive regularly and also daily basis, and also support setting up the formal procedure process and internal policy, and drive the the all the different purpose of data analysis in investigation and loss prevention purpose. So I think we are utilizing captive in in different purposes, and then this designated role really help lead the whole. The whole initiatives and the drive the five-year uh, captive business plan, and from having that that wider visibility than others do regarding a, a committee which which brings in different business functions and looks at how the captive can be used. Are there any specific examples or ways that, or ideas that have come about through that process which might not have come about if it was just the the vanilla risk and insurance team which which have been working with the captive? I think the only one I can think of, Richard, is a specific line that we have written which covers. A reimbursement type policy for a particular country in Europe,、uh, which came to us from a discussion with the business unit controllers and our colleagues in legal. It took a little while to get that policy in place. Sort of low, low frequency but high severity, and that's gone down really well. But again, I think as the risk team and the captive, we uniquely placed within the corporation because we seem to have touch points with pretty much every function, and particularly when businesses have losses, they want to talk to us. Um, or not just losses, but sort of P and L spikes,、um, and that was the one. And that's been in place now, I think, five or six years, and seems to be working pretty well for us.、Uh, they don't come along that often, but when they do, they are good opportunities to to grab hold of. I'm, I'm intrigued as well to know、uh, with with the amount of work that you do internally with consulting the the,、uh, the various risk departments on what to add to the captive. You know, I know that your manager, your captive manager, is Beecher Carlson. How do you keep them busy if you're doing so much of your own <laughs> own analysis and consulting work? What have you got Jason running around doing for you? Well, the, the, the captive manager plays a very specific role for captives, which is helping you know do the financial, the transactional, the you know the tax,、um, all of those regulatory regulatory tasks, and、um, our captive administrator does a very good job at that. But beyond that, you know, the the day to day kind of talking to internal business and and trying to solve problems. Of course, you know that would not be something that our business would go speak to the external vendor. That's why we have the structure that has an internal resource that's totally dedicated to talking to our internal business, but an external captive administrator who does the the regulatory accounting compliance service. Uh, we have multiple resources to advise us.、Um, definitely, we utilize a captive manager Beecher Carlson to advise us、um, on regular basis, especially board meetings and、uh, strategy meetings. But in addition to that,、uh, we also trying to seek what's going on in the captive market, what's the trending, how the other captive owners have been utilizing their captive to do different business support. So we try to gather all these information and share. Uh, with the whole board members and advisory committee in early stage, so that we can provide some education and training proce- process to to all those stakeholders. And then once we will evaluate it as formal cases, whether we have any needs internally. If we see the needs, we see the trend, and we see the matching part, then we will start formal case study and then do feasibility study. So I think、uh, everything is really aligned with、uh, the market trend. Great, and just lastly, before before I let the three of you go,、um, how do you see the role of the Cummins captive evolving 
in the future any, and any big plans or not not maybe just in terms of new lines but in terms of just the way that the, the captive interfaces with, with the business you know when i took the role in risk insurance cummins was a six billion dollar company and you know we're looking at 23 billion plus in a you know in a in a decade um, it's just an indication that the business continues to grow and evolve in many different ways through new product introduction, new innovation, new technologies. And I think the captive is there to help support that as a business initiative. We do expect the captive to grow. There, you know, um, once an individual line goes into the captive, we do on an annual assessment determine whether that line should stay in or, or should come out. We have taken lines out of the captive, but we're continually uh, partnering with the business to solve issues and solve risk and bring solutions. And so I think as the business grows and expands, there's much opportunity for the captive to expand as well. Think about a captive, our captive history. When we start, uh, first the starting point, we only have three business lines. And then now we have 10 PNC lines. And in the following three years, we are going to roll out the International Employee Benefits Program to all the 60 countries. So it will be really big growth after that, I think it will double our captive size. And uh, at the same time, we're also evaluating the other business opportunities, um, like uh, supplier warranty, extended warranty, or, or many different things. It takes longer time to, to do internal communication until all the business leaders and uh, uh, senior leaders can buy in. So we are targeting like a five to 10 year business development strategy. Neil, the Cummins team discussed in great detail just how visible the captive and its role is across the business and the benefits that it brings. How common do you believe that approach to be today? Yeah, it was very interesting. I I don't think it is common at all. Um, Certainly in my experience, which I appreciate is quite limited and, and, and largely in the life science sector, very little is known or understood about the captive uh, throughout the organisation. And you do occasionally come across types of insurance. Trade credit is a good example where businesses might be buying trade credit on, on their own uh, in silos. And, and you only find out about the opportunity to do something different You know, once you've sort of been around uh, and asked the questions. But essentially, I think it does depend on to what extent insurance is a reserved power in companies that are more decentralized it's important that the uh, the benefit and existence of the captive is very well known in companies which are much more centralized maybe maybe it's not such a big deal so that is almost it for episode seven of the global captive podcast thank you to all of our guests this week ryan ralston at elevate captive judy dana and mikey at cummins and thank you neil for joining me in the studio see you next time captives <laughs>